0: Lights, cameras, elections. Excuse me? We binge-watch Netflix and HBO. We're glued to cable news to watch every campaign twist and turn. Hmm. Are the lines between cable and campaigns blurring? Are elections turning into pseudo-Game of Thrones or Mad Men, or women as the case may be? So let's compare campaigns to TV series, side by side, to see how they influence each other and influence us as viewers and as voters. And we'll do that with the executive producer and writer of The West Wing and many other top-rated series. But you're also going to learn some other surprising things, like how many speeches did Al Gore have ready to go on election night 2000? And who had the best elevator pitch? Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, or Vince Gilligan? I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics As Unusual. And today's episode of Politics As Unusual is brought to you by FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, they're our sponsor. Now you've heard the question, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? My guest and I are going to turn that question around. Do TV series resemble elections or do elections resemble TV series? Now few people have as much experience on both sides of that question as my guest, my friend and former colleague, Eli Addy. We first met back in 2000 when Eli became the speechwriter for Al Gore's presidential campaign, and more about that later. Well, a lot more about that later. Then he moved to Los Angeles, where his writing and executive producing career has been remarkable from the West Wing to House, just check out his IMDb page and be impressed. Numerous nominations for Writer Guild of America Awards seven Emmy nominations, and a win for the West Wing documentary special. Eli Addy, we meet again. A great pleasure to nice be here, Nice to see Michael. you back here, Good man. To see you. It has been a while since we worked together.
1: That's true, although it's funny. We actually met a few years before 2000. I was thinking when? that I think we met at the Democratic Convention in 1996 when I was a young sort of uh, Clinton Who staffer. are you writing for? Uh, I, was, uh, on, I was on the Clinton communications staff, uh-huh. but I was not a speechwriter um, at that point. I had been a speechwriter on Capitol Hill, but, but I, I think I was trying to retire from it already at some tender young age. And, uh, but I was involved in the sure. speechwriting boiler room uh-huh. during the Clinton convention. And so it's funny because I would just be tasked with, you know, as people do on, at, on these teams at democratic conventions... Uh, scrubbing the speeches of anybody throughout the day to make sure that they were consistent with the Clinton sure. message. But also, I was assigned a few primetime speakers to kind of babysit. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of them was, I want to say Dennis Archer, the sure. mayor of Detroit. Yes. And his political consultant was David Axelrod. Yes. And that's how I met David, who I've been friends with for yeah. years. And, uh, I, and so... There you Maybe go. you and I didn't interact that much, but I was in and out of your rehearsal room and the precious time. So you've been that, in and out of my life for years. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but we didn't start really working together until 2000. Until um, 2000. How did you get that job? I stumble into working in politics and speech writing, actually, first for the mayor of New York. And... I just loved it. It was so absurd. You know, these, these, I was a kid, and really, literally, and these um, important figures, you know, would be, at least for seven minutes, kind of dependent on a bunch of pages that I threw together. And if you're working anywhere uh, that's at all disorganized, as I always did, uh, you have some say over what they say. It's kind of an odd thing. And um, so I uh, went pretty quickly from, Working in the mayor's office in New York to working on Capitol Hill for Dick Gephardt, uh, where I I got to know everybody in democratic politics in 10 minutes because he was a democratic leader and all the political consultants and Uh all the pollsters would sort of converge on his office. And so it wasn't long before I was offered a job in the White House. Actually, first as a speechwriter for Clinton, and I turned that job down. Because I I had a sense from friends of mine at that point who worked in the White House that the speechwriters were not they didn't have the kind of close relationship with Clinton that I had with Dick Gephardt and again I was really young I was I don't know 24 or something but um, I traveled with him and if he bought a book he'd buy two copies and he wanted me to sort of be thinking about the things he thought about and so I was very close to him and the White House seemed like a bureaucracy to me by comparison so then. A uh, while after that, I was offered a job by Don Baer, who was Clinton's sure. communications director, you know Don well, yep. uh, as just kind of an all-purpose communications aide. And it seemed more interesting than being a speechwriter. And utility think,
0: infielder. Yeah,
1: and I wrote some speeches for Clinton. I wrote some radio addresses, and mm-hmm. I would help on states of the union and things yep. like that. But I really did a lot of other things trying to figure out policies he could announce and helping to put this message calendar together of things right. he was going to do. And so – in the course of that job, I guess I just ended up on the radar screen of the Gore staff. So,
0: so then how do you make the jump
1: to Hollywood and writing? Well, the Florida recount ended and uh, not the way we wanted no. it to end. I was... Unemployed. Um, all my friends from Democratic politics were unemployed, and for you know weeks, just going out every night to restaurants and bars in Dupont Circle and yeah. Adams Morgan, and just looking our wounds. And everybody was asking everybody, "What are you going to do? Are you going to move to New York? Are you going to work on Capitol Hill?" And I'd known a couple people who were television writers, slightly people from college. I was in a little bit of touch with just enough to know that there were teams of people who wrote TV shows. And I knew I couldn't write a movie. I didn't know how. Um, so I started saying to people, you know, I'm thinking of moving to LA and becoming a television writer. And every single person I said that to, 40 people in the space of two or three weeks said, The West Wing, you should go work on The West Wing. It's a TV show. Everybody was watching it in Washington. Yeah. I wasn't. But they all said, it's a show that is about what you just did. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it was on on Wednesday nights on NBC at the time. There weren't DVDs or anything yet. And, um, I mean, DVDs existed as a format. They just didn't have the show on DVD. But I watched the next two episodes on the air. And now with an eye toward, you know, a possible career, I thought, this is a great show. Uh, It it, it seemed smart and facile and breezy. And the the brilliance of Aaron Sorkin, um, the sort of breeziness and the ease of the dialogue... For somebody who's a moron and knows nothing about screenwriting, I thought to myself, I could do this. It just seemed easy. And the
0: speed of the dialogue on that show sometimes.
1: Yeah, but something about the breeziness of it threw me. If I had realized in those couple weeks how difficult it was to write something like that, I probably wouldn't have taken that on as a challenge. I don't know. But uh, I thought to myself, I wasn't that serious about it, but I thought that could be something I could do. Go work on that show. So I had read a Washington Post profile of Aaron Sorkin, just about the the West Wing, um, and he seemed to be this kind of young guy who wanted to depict people in politics in a positive way, which was unusual in popular culture, then and now. And, um, And I just thought to myself, I should just call him. And you know, when you work on a presidential campaign, and I worked very closely with Al Gore, he was always saying to me, "Oh, I just read an article by this economist at the University of Chicago," or "I want to talk to this poet," or "I need to, you know, I need you, know you know he, to have a conversation with Bob Rubin."
0: You know what he wants to do to me? I was prepping him for one of the comedy speeches, like the White House. Oh co- yeah, it was the one where they wheeled him in on a on hand a, truck. Yeah, on yes, a hand sure. truck. And we're in the middle of rehearsing it, and he gets a phone call. And he says, excuse me for a moment. I'm going, well, yeah. So he goes back and goes, well, that was Johnny Carson. <laughs> he has a couple of jokes.
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, well, well, that's the thing is that using Al Gore's name, yeah. I could get anybody on the phone. And, and we would do that. I mean, we would reach out. If we wanted jokes for, for those comedy routines, we would call Jay Leno. We would mm-hmm. call Larry David. We would call Al Franken, you know, the biggest names in comedy. And they would take some time usually and help us. It was an amazing thing. So I was used to just being brazen um, and, and just just working the phone. And, and again, I wasn't deeply invested in the idea of being a screenwriter. It was just a kind of a lark. Yeah. Uh, and and I, th- I thought I would probably be back in Washington within a couple years anyway um, at that point. I mean, I wasn't sure. So I called Los Angeles Information and from my little apartment in Washington, and I asked for the number of NBC. Uh, which is the network the West Wing was on. And they gave me the general number. I called that number and I said, I'm trying to reach the TV show, The West Wing. And they said, actually, you need to call the studio, which is Warner Brothers. And they Mm -hmm. gave me the general number of Warner Brothers. So then I dialed that number and I said, I'm trying to reach the West Wing. They switched me over. Somebody answered the West Wing. Uh, And I said, I'm trying to reach Aaron Sorkin. They switched me over. A woman answered the phone. It was Aaron Sorkin's office. And I said, he doesn't know me. I was Al Gore's speechwriter till a couple weeks ago. She put me on hold and he got on the phone. And, you know, he was incredibly nice and solicitous. And Uh I think it was a little bit like uh, a lawyer who had worked on the OJ trial uh, trying to call law and order. They're going to be interested in taking that call. Something might come. Yeah. And and I said to him in that conversation, we had a nice conversation and he was just asking about the recount and was I sleeping okay? And he was incredibly (laughs) nice. And I said, look, I'm not asking you for a job because you've got a big hit TV show, but I'm interested in maybe being a television writer. And uh, if I came to LA sometime, you know, would you have a cup of coffee with me? And he said, I'd love to consider you for a job. Uh, call my assistant when you're coming out here and set up a meeting. So I bought a plane ticket to LA <laughs> just for that meeting. I met with him for half an hour. We had a fantastic meeting. Uh, and he hired me. It's the short version of the story. With a one-year contract, I think... Under the, I'd never written a script, but I think he thought he read some speeches of mine, and I think he thought if I can just get some good anecdotes out of this person for a year, and then you know toss them by the wayside, that'll be fine. Uh, and it, I just you know stuck with it, and 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 had a great time, and worked incredibly hard to learn the craft. Once I was there, I loved every second of it. It yeah. just felt like uh, that job in particular. It felt like my whole life had. Led up to it because I had all of the data and sort of uh, verisimilitude that they might want in terms of acronyms right. and knowledge of insider facts and truths. And they had plenty of other people doing that before me. It's not like the show wasn't great before yeah. I got there. It was. They had Lawrence O'Donnell and Dee Dee Myers and all those great people. But, uh, but I just lived and breathed it and had a great time and worked really hard to learn the craft. And Aaron was fantastic to me, yeah. and John Wells, who was not was one of the original producers but took over
0: from Aaron when he left the show was fantastic to me and uh, that's how it happened. You know, several years ago, you and I had breakfast out here and you mentioned to me a show that I had not seen called Breaking Bad mm. and got me hooked not only on that, but then I noticed that there had been a change in TV, which I'm sure you had seen years before that, that we went from the you know, episode, 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 a right. different story. Bonanza, what happens to Little Joe this week? What right. happens to Haas the next week? Closed-end stories. Yeah, closed-end stories. But now we have Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, The Americans, Mad Men, Wire, Homeland, My Guilty One, 24, which I did get hooked on. 24 is great. What happened? How did it go from one shots to year after year after year and well, a continuing story? Yeah,
1: I mean— It's been a big shift. There's no question. You're absolutely right about that. I would say that there has always been heavily serialized TV. First of all, daytime soap operas have been that way for, you know, 97 and a half years probably at this point. Uh, And there always have been some serialized TV shows. Um, And they're always experimenting on, you know, broadcast TV, you know, with how serialized you can or should be. But the reason that... The average network TV show until the dawn of cable, until the Sopranos and, you know, really heightened with a show right. like Breaking Bad, which I think accelerated the sort of binge watching trend mm-hmm. where you just can't wait to devour the next one seconds after an episode is over. Um the the, the old model was really designed um for more passive TV viewers, which is to say I remember when I was working on the West Wing and even House that networks would do survey research and they would come to you and they would say, you know, you need to know that the average regular viewer of your broadcast show is watching every third episode and then not bothering Uh to watch the rest. So you need to make sure that the episodes are not too – that you don't – penalize people who aren't seeing every episode. There can be sort of reward for people who watch every episode, continuing deepening relationships and threads, but you can't just start it where you would have no idea what was going on if you hadn't seen episodes six, seven, and eight before episode nine. And and for reruns, that was also a factor. That if you're going to just turn on, you know, some... Bravo or USA late at night and catch a rerun of Law and Order or whatever it was, that it should, it should work out of context. That was the thinking. And a lot of the broadcast networks wanted a, at least a majority of their shows to be like that. And I think cable, it's hard to know what really started that trend because when The Sopranos began, I don't know that even HBO had an idea that it could be different. Uh, it probably, it was just David Chase, you know, really yeah. wanting to do independent film and not wanting to do television and just breaking a lot of rules and, and other people who followed in his wake. And, um, and also these are shows, cable shows tended to really be the opposite of what you would call a procedural show, a cop show, a medical right. show, a legal show where there's a case of the week or a patient of the week. And the guest characters kind of give it a sort of a a discrete episodic quality, yeah. right? If it's a show that is like Breaking Bad or Mad Men, it's all about the regular characters. And so you you just need to slice up their lives and follow that story going forward. But it's been an amazing thing because there's still tons of the old kind of television and now there's tons of the new kind of television. And, and every kind of story is being
0: told in every possible way and it's a very exciting time to be in the field. And I remember trying to fit in an episode... During one of the recent debate preps. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, I'm sort of in the middle of a, a series right now. And it started to get me thinking of the parallels between a campaign and a series. You need your drama. Got that. You need your interesting characters. You need plot development. You need the twists and turns. You need the conclusion. Well, hopefully a conclusion and hopefully a nice conclusion. Yes. And I thought, you know what? This is sort of like mirror time. One is a mirror image of the other. So I want to go through with these sort of stages of a campaign and we'll talk about what it means in a political context and what it means in a dramatic TV context. So it starts with the idea. What's your idea as the candidate? What's your idea of the writer? The best description I ever read of it was when Vince, it is said that Vince Gilligan, when he made his proposal for Breaking Bad, said most stories are about a bad guy who turns good. This is going to be about a good guy who turns bad. And in that one sentence, I mean, it's the whole thing. You have to have that in a series. You have to have it in a campaign too. Have you ever seen that kind of just a crystallization of a campaign or a series as tight as that? Well, actually, it's funny. Uh, One
1: of the the things Vince Gilligan said when he was pitching – uh, Breaking Bad was that he wanted to take uh, Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface. <laughs> it's just another formulation of what you said. Yeah. And that's even more radical than some people may think because the, the old model of television where basically you're tuning in every week for eight years to see Dr. House solve a weird disease. Yeah. Um, it's funny because Hugh Laurie, who played House, always... Liked to say and still likes to say uh, that on on a typical television show, um, the main character doesn't change at all and everybody around him changes. Uh-huh. Whereas in a movie, the lead character changes and nobody around him changes. And he, he's right about TV in the sense that if you're going to do, you can't tell a story of some huge transformation in somebody's life in an episode because what are you going to do next week? Is right. he going to transform again? Or is he yeah. a different character than people yeah. are used to seeing? And what if you miss that episode? And so uh, so I think one of the things, this is actually probably one of the differences between uh, a series and, and a campaign, which is that you're in a, in a campaign like maybe an old broadcast television show, you're trying to... Unless you're Donald Trump, if you're trying to radiate sort of constancy and consistency. And this right. is who I was, and this is who I am, and this is who I will be. You can trust that. Yeah. Maybe Trump is is the, the our kind of hyper-crazed, serialized, Breaking Bad-style candidate in the sense that you never know what you're going to get. You never know who he's going to be. President um,
0: Breaking Bad is a very scary concept. <laughs> Walter Eli. White
1: is now <laughs> Commander-in-Chief. But, <laughs> but I think y- you're making a good point, which is that Hollywood's very dependent upon sort of crystallized vision statements. Uh Uh, I was told by somebody that when Shonda Rhimes pitched Grey's Anatomy to ABC, she said, it's high school set in a hospital, that that was the idea. And it's, it's why that show's been on the air for so long, I think, is that there was such a clear vision of what it was from the beginning. And... Yes, campaigns should have that. And and I'm sure many have. I've never been near one that has. No, But then the campaigns I've worked on, as you sort of
0: alluded to, they've all usually ended with some kind of a wrenching concession speech. When I think of that inability to sort of say why I'm doing this is the very sad story of Ted Kennedy in 1980. Sure. Asked the very basic question by Roger Mudd, why are you running? And he didn't have a very good answer. He had no answer at all. So it starts with the why, and then I get, and I'm dying to hear the answer to this. A candidate has to have have a message and go campaign it. You've got to go pitch an idea. Have you ever done the stereotypical Hollywood pitch? I have Yes, I have the last How done- horrible
1: is it? You know, they're really not bad. They're really not bad. I, so I've, I've uh, the last few years, been in sort of development deals yeah. with TV studios where I've been, it's almost like the old studio system. I work on shows, but I also have written some pilots and, you know, had to pitch the pilots and, and uh, sell them to, <laughs> to the studio that I work for and then to a network. And, uh, uh, you know, usually, unlike a candidate running for office, usually you know the people in the room. Hollywood's yeah. a fairly small community, especially if you work a lot with certain studios or networks, um, and your agents can kind of make calls in advance and almost kind of get people excited that oh, you know, here's an interesting idea that we think you'll like. Um, and really, what you do is you—it's a—it's a sales pitch. It's very different than writing a script. You kind of go in, and you do need like a message. It is almost like a campaign announcement speech. Yeah, it's you're trying to show. Um, that, that that you have a vision, that you have that, that it's something you're personally connected to. Um, uh, you often will in these pitches try to talk about why this story is so personal to you, why it's the thing you've been waiting to write your whole life. Yeah, even if it isn't, that's one of the things that's a good <laughs> thing to have in that kind of a session. Wait, but, but I'm I'm making a note for my next pitch. Yeah, there you my go. My whole life. Uh, and and then it's really just, it's kind of like like a speech. It's 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 punchy little. Sort of bites of um, ideas. You know, here's, gonna, we're going to have this character and we'll be following him and then his nemesis will be this character. And in a typical episode, this might happen and here's what might happen over the course yeah. of a season. But I think what you want to do uh, in addition to conveying a sort of a vision is convey a tone. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a comedy writer, but if you're selling a comedy, they should be laughing in the pitch. Yeah. Uh, if you're, Trying to tell an epic love story, you know, people should be swooning a bit as you describe the the great forbidden romance that's you know, at the
0: heart of it. You're making me think now of 2016 as a pitch. Two people come in one after the other. First one says "stronger together," and the other says "make America great again." Pick the series. No, you're right. And 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 the funny
1: thing is that um, I've never really um use this in my own career but you know you some people sometimes talk about uh an elevator pitch yeah i think that's entered the vernacular yeah. far beyond hollywood that just you have to be able to describe an idea a, a, a movie whatever it is in you know only the amount of time it would take you to get to right. whatever floor you're going to and i think voters we're political junkies and we're going to be watching primary debates in right. alabama in you know uh I don't know, July of an off year. I've got my TiVo set already. (laughs) I'm sure you do. And uh, I'm going to have mine set very soon. But the average voter has, I think, about the attention span of the average Hollywood executive, meaning there's a lot going on in their lives. They're not so plugged into it all the time. And they're going to sit down at some point and give it about 15 minutes, if that. And and in a debate, maybe uh, some you know TV news magazine, some videos people put on their Facebook page, whatever it is. And you have to you know as a candidate, as a campaign, you have to have something that's easily graspable. Um, you know, a strong movie or TV show. You kind of this sounds shallow and superficial, but. Um, Sometimes a really strong clear idea you can grasp it from a visual image. Yeah. You can you can oh, know sure. that the poster is an easy poster to design. And and I'm all for complexity and for nuanced storytelling, but uh, you, you, every fall, as I drive around Los Angeles and see the billboards for all the new TV shows, particularly network shows, though obviously now it's a it's a year round right. process, but you're always seeing these billboards and it's just a bunch of faces and you think they don't know what this show is because they can't communicate to me what this show is. On so a it's
0: so it's the tagline,
1: or or it's maybe, but but sometimes those are just shows that aren't going anywhere because okay. they don't have a crystallization. You know, with Bill Clinton. I think his face was the message in part huh. because it was a generational change. It was uh-huh. a way of sort of saying we need a new energy, we need a new generation to solve mm. these problems. And obviously you could boil it down to the economy and a couple other things. Beyond that, I think Barack Obama may have also felt like a bit of a generational change, mm-hmm. but but uh it was just change. Yeah. And and um he looked like change and he was change. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Obama, yeah, when somebody that, who had a charisma that yeah. you just looked at him and you, you wanted to follow him.
0: Yeah. When the message almost fits the candidate, there is a certain power there. Now, Eli and I have been talking about the pitch, the elevator speech. How to present an idea in the same amount of time it takes to ride to the top floor of a building on an elevator. So here goes. My elevator pitch for FedEx. So you see, you've got this really valuable package, and it has to get across the country or maybe across the world really, really fast. It can't be delayed. It can't get lost. And it has to get to the right person or a nuclear war is going to erupt or something like that. There's no room for chance, no room for error. So you've got to send it FedEx. They've got the team. They've got the trucks. They've got the planes. They've got a computer system to make sure it gets safely and on time to the exact person you want. Huh? The building for the elevator pitch is only two floors high? All right. Let's try this. When it's your stuff, you've got to use FedEx. It's affordable. It's fast. Cut. Pretty good. So we talk about the idea, talk about the pitch. Now you got to put the team together. And you and I talked about this once. I'm like the uncle. I show up for the vacation. I play a little while, and then I go go away, and you guys are there for the whole summer. But I've seen teams that worked because they clicked and ones that perhaps did not. Probably the tightest team I ever worked with was in 92, Carvel, Bagala. Stephanopoulos, and the pollster, uh, Stan Greenberg. Stan Greenberg, yeah. And it was just like there were gears that just meshed. I'd ask you to talk about, have you been part of any kind of a mesh like that? And what about out here with the shows that you've worked with? Which ones clicked? You know, there's so many ways that TV staffs and campaign
1: staffs come together. And I would say there's a very similar problem. It's probably true of any company and any line of work that there are people who show up because they want a paycheck uh, and need a job and there are people who are true believers. And um, you're never going to, or it's rare that you're gonna assemble a crew for a TV show, of writers, producers, you know, uh, people who carry equipment on the set, 250, 300 people who are all true believers, although there are shows that have that. Mm-hmm. Um, the truly great shows, I, I've heard a lot about, a good friend of mine is now on um, Handmaid's Tale uh, and wow. talks about how everybody walks around that set and the environment of that show feeling like they have something very precious in their hands that they mm-hmm. need to treat very carefully and, and uh, I'll bet it's an incredible place to work. The West Wing was absolutely a place filled with true believers that that by and large we were there, actors, writers, everybody, because we believed in it, we loved the show itself. We loved the product and we wanted it to be great. And we were willing to be there at all hours to make it great. And then I've worked on some short-lived shows where other than the person who created it, and sometimes not even that person, it's not anybody's passion. Yeah. And um, those shows don't really work. And I think those campaigns don't really work. You can... You can have a lot of money, you can hire great consultants and staff, but if their heart's not really in it, if they're not really living and breathing it, um, somebody said to me a handful of years ago now, it was one of my agents actually said to me that in this environment with crowded, you know, kind of, uh, uh, there's something like, I don't know, 500 TV shows on the air this year, if you include streaming and everything, uh, to survive a show has to be somebody's favorite show. Yeah. And I think that's a principle that applies to politics too. You have to there have to be people passionate about you. You can't just be a person out there who nobody really likes. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing because taking the West Wing as an example. And this is not to say there wasn't plenty of behind-the-scenes dysfunction. There was. And everything I've worked on in politics and Hollywood, there has been. Because they tend to be, you know, ego-driven people, hard-driving people, uh, you know, people who have some dysfunction in their own selves. Yeah. Um, those Those are the most interesting, smartest people, I think, by and large. But, you know, at the West Wing... A lot of the dynamic in the writers' room made it on the page. Somebody huh. would say something goofy. People would start making fun of it. That would become a scene. Uh, in the writers' room of House, certain kind of uh, you know harmless,ly body or tasteless jokes that we might tell in the writers' room <laughs> or over lunch would find their way into the mouth of the character. And and there's a there's a there's a backstage energy that that. You just, if, it's a, if it feels like a fun, loose, creative place where you enjoy bantering with your colleagues, the character's banter is going to be shows. better. It it's shows. just, you know, now, and I think the same is true of politics that, you know, if, if you feel energy from the workplace, from the cause, from yep. the top down, mm-hmm. it's just going to go into all your work. It's certainly true as a speechwriter that you're trying to capture a kind of a spirit that has to come from the top. It can't just be created.
0: So we launched the campaign. We launched the series. Those first few weeks, how hard are they for a new series in particular? Because you and I both know how hard it is in a campaign. We already started to talk about the hurdles along the way. And the weirdest ones are the ones you just don't see coming. Where did that come from? And I'm sure the same thing happens in a series.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Well... I would say the biggest difference is that part of what makes campaigns interesting and exciting and also horrific is that um, all of the obstacles tend to be external. Not all the obstacles. I shouldn't say that. Many of the biggest obstacles. That You pick up a newspaper and suddenly there's been a hurricane somewhere and how you respond to that may be a a test of your uh, compassion or efficiency or anything else. Uh, Or... You know, your your opponent lobs some kind of a surprise attack or finds a weird document that you wrote in college or something. Um, generally speaking, in scripted television, you know, you're just scripting everything. So there's very little that you can't control. Right. Um, and the thing – the, the obstacles tend to be things like you cast an actor in a role – maybe because you got pressure from the network or the studio to do it because Mm -hmm. of something else they had done or the way they look, and they're not really able to handle the material you're giving them. That happens a lot. Yeah, And sometimes you get to recast that role. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have to write around it. Sometimes you have to edit around it. Um, You end up in TV, the writers are the producers, and they're the kind of constant presence on a show. But you all. Most of the directors will be guests who will cycle in for a few weeks. You just might end up with a director who doesn't connect with the material, right. and, in, and in an early season of a show, you haven't built you haven't built a sort of a stable of regular directors, and so you can end up with somebody who really tanks an episode when you're just trying to find your footing. Um, so a lo- you know, and also studio interference and network interference yeah. that can be really hard. and And I've always said that I think that a true measure of success in Hollywood is how good are you at failure? How good are you at rebounding? Because you're gonna have tons of failure. You're gonna write scripts that are, are even if people love them are not gonna get made. Yeah. You're going to work on shows that are that get canceled. You're gonna be a super talented writer but end up on a show or in this or writing on a movie where it just isn't really your style or sensibility yeah. and so it doesn't work out. You know, simply because you're not. You know, and how do, do you do you kind of pick yourself back up and and still have the
0: confidence to do great work well it, the great correlation there is with i'm sure you've seen the poster of the career of abraham lincoln lost this lost this lost this yeah, lost this yeah. lost this elected president in the united states yeah well you know um there's a woman
1: named jill soloway uh-huh. who created the tv show transparent which was a very groundbreaking yeah. and wonderful show and uh she gave a speech somewhere i know her slightly but I just read this speech that she gave at some college graduation after Transparent was a big phenomenon where she talked about how she went through a year, kind of a a staffing season in television where she didn't get a job at all. And um, she, I guess, had written some pilot for HBO that they turned down and then she was without a job and she had school tuitions to pay for her kids and was kind of desperate. and ended up uh, borrowing money from her agents uh, to make a film, which kind of put her on the map a little bit. But the point is she was at a a moment of rejection and humiliation and then did her best work. Mm -hmm. And it's such a confidence-based business. I think politics is the same thing. How do you – how, if you're Abraham Lincoln or Dick Gephardt or Al Gore, how do you lose an election and then dust yourself off and go inspire people? It takes a unique – yeah. Kind of almost mania, almost craziness. Yeah, to think you can do it, and then you can do
0: it. Yeah, well, that kind of gets us into the idea of character development, and there's almost two meanings of that word: the character sure. that develops. Let me just start with two from TV, and then if you have one to throw on, and then I'm going to ask you about Al Gore. Sure, Walter I just saw him White. Recently. Oh, tell him I said hi. I will. I... <laughs> Walter White obviously changes, but I was watching a panel that had Kiefer Sutherland on it. And it was in the last year of 24. Mm. And he said, just for the lark of it, he went back and watched a couple of episodes from the first year. And he said, I didn't recognize that guy. Mm. I didn't recognize the way he looked, the character. He said, I couldn't believe I had changed that much and not even realized it. Did you see that with Gore at all? Did you see that with with Gephardt, anyone else? Because you do change a little out there. Well,
1: I didn't when I worked for Gephardt, He wasn't running for right. anything other than his congressional seat. Uh-huh. Uh, but with Gore, yeah, I saw him change. I did see him change, and in a good way. I think that the presidency is such a weird, unique thing. You've been very close to it. Um, the responsibility, the amount of power, mm-hmm. um, the the impact of even the slightest, you know, comment you might make on anything. And I think in Gore's case, even though he had been just, you know, 20 yards from the Oval Office for eight years, when he ran for president, he was, I think I saw him over the course of the couple years that he was really running, he he just got better at everything. He got sharper, he got more confident, Mm -hmm. um, he... He found a better voice, I think, on the campaign trail. I think at times, you know, he'd be the first to admit he could be a little, you know, stiff and wooden in, you know, delivering speeches. I remember when I started working for him, Michael, you and I had a bunch of sessions with him and it was about just loosening him up and even his posture as he stood at presidential press conferences. And that stuff became much less of a problem Uh, by the end of the campaign. I think he just caught a groove and sort of grew into this suit in a way, this suit of, you know, sort of presidential armor that he was hoping, aspiring to inhabit. Um, so I think there, there aren't that many TV shows, even in the wake of Breaking Bad, where the, the main character is going to actually change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you went back, it's a wonderful line of Vince Gilligan's about taking Mr. Chips and turning him into Scarface. Yeah. But, but as I think about it ne- right now, if you, if you look at the last couple episodes of Breaking Bad and even some clues along the way, was Walter White uh, – was Heisenberg within Walter White all along? He probably was. Had was he be. laying dormant? Yeah. So was it a guy changing or was it a guy discovering who he really had been, who had been suppressed by ah. this kind of banal sort of lower middle class existence that they sort of show at the very beginning of the series? Um, so it's – change is hard. Uh, and most people don't change, and most people don't want change, and that includes voters, and, and it includes fans of TV shows. If if you if you are on a hit show, and they love the template of a typical episode of House or or The Sopranos or whatever it is, and you and you. You don't monkey with that at all, they'll get bored. And if you do, they'll just pine for the earlier classic episodes.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You just made me think. I know if you were a fan of it, I'm mad about you. Great series, funny about a newlywed couple, but there were a couple episodes where she doesn't have an affair, but like she is kissed by someone. And the series goes serious for like three episodes. And it's truly uncomfortable. Because I guess you just identify with the characters, you like the characters, and you're almost like, how dare you act like that? You disappoint me. It's almost like your parents. How could you do that? We raised you better than that. Well, you should never do that in a
1: presidential campaign. (laughs) And the analog to that in a presidential campaign is, I think, Thomas Dewey who ran for president in 1948 against Harry Truman. And among the many reasons, he was widely expected to win and didn't win, but among the many reasons is still believed to be that he shaved his mustache like a couple weeks before election day. So he had a brand, he had a look. And he changed it. And then he changed it. And it just didn't look like the same character. It's like recasting your lead right before the finale.
0: You know where you see that though? And it's the ones where it's the most uncomfortable. The person who gets nominated and has to run is the vice president sure. and has to be the attack dog, and right, and may not be comfortable in that role. 2016, Tim Kaine, one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet, everybody's favorite next-door neighbor or uncle, had to be the attack, dog, and he did it like a good soldier, never complained about it, but it just—it wasn't yeah. him. It wasn't his, Yeah, it wasn't it, his it brand. I mean, work. so it's—it's
1: it's a funny thing. I mean. I think that Carter Eskew, who was Gore's sure. chief strategist, do you know well when, he, when Gore was running for president, he used to always tell me that talking about sort of bomb-throwing, backbencher political candidates, Pap Buchanan, Ross Perot, the right. various ones that there had been up to that point, he said, you know, people think they're tired of politicians sounding the same. But, that every, but every, every field, every genre has rules of communication. And if you violate them, people get very uneasy. Yeah. So he always felt that a Papu-Cannon or somebody like that was going to seem appealing to certain people in the beginning, but have a very low ceiling of support. Of course, Donald Trump violates that. Right. And, um, but it could be <coughs> the exception that proves the rule, well,
0: as they say. We hope. It's true. In a campaign and in a series, there's sometimes an unexpected person who breaks out. Not the candidate, but somebody either on the staff or prominent. I was just thinking, of course, of Breaking Bad, Saul Goodman. Yeah. Now, sure, the Better Call Saul series in, in and of itself. And I was thinking back in 92, Carvel and Madeline sort of broke out and sure. almost became their own series later. In '08, i I'm sort of stretching the definition, but Sarah yes, Palin took absolutely. all the all the absolutely. oxygen out of the room First, have you ever had a fictional character like that who just surprised you? Yeah. I mean,
1: well, if I'm just thinking about the TV landscape, um, I think that the best contemporary analog to that, I mean, there's so many characters on tiny shows, on fledgling streaming channels, but Cookie on the show Empire, Uh I think, was that for a while. Uh, I, I wasn't a big viewer of that show. I saw a handful of them, but the character was outrageous and would say anything and would do anything. And, and people watched the show because they never knew what she was going to do next. I think in a way, uh, House, on the show House, was a little bit like that. He was outrageous and he would say things that would, you know, yes. upset <laughs> everybody in the room. And uh, he was a kind of a 14-year-old boy. And and that was, you know, that's a certain model of leading character. Yeah. Somebody who, when they step in the room, it's like Jack Nicholson in any movie. Every, every, all the rules go out the window, and you kind of can't take your eyes off them. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a that's a good uh, approach to creating something. Yeah. But you know, it depends what you're doing. I mean, uh, Mad Men, you know, would have would have rejected
0: a character like that, like a foreign organ. Right. I'm talking first about people who sort of break out, but then there's also, in a sense, the incident. It's the unexpected thing that happens that almost changes the plot of the entire story. Changes the entire campaign. Again, when you first introduced me to Breaking Bad, spoiler alert if you're going to watch it, please don't listen for the next 30 seconds. But he said, it's an interesting show, and then there's going to be an explosion on a plane, and then it takes off like a bat out of hell for the rest of the run, which is exactly what happened. Sometimes that does happen in a campaign, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for bad reason. I kind of think of the debates in 2000 that you and I worked on was sort of that plane where it just got whack. And the thing that kills me about that, the snap polls, well, let me just explain it for those of you who weren't there. First debate, if you look at the snap polls, almost every snap poll had Gore winning by six to seven points. But then for the next 48 hours, his opponent and his opponent's staff just blasted away at little things that he had done. And within forty-eight hours, yeah. not only did we not win, yeah. we lost. Yeah, and, and you know, mainstream
1: media and cable news replayed all those little yeah. sort of uh, infractions over and over and over again, out of context of the overall yeah. performance. Absolutely. I mean, there are moments both in a TV series and in a campaign where you have to deliver. I mean, that's that's a unique phenomenon, and, and maybe. Maybe now we would be sort of analogizing that to reviews. Yeah, if you do something that's very particular that may be good, and critics take it a certain
0: way and are very unfair about it. There was that moment in the 2004 campaign in Iowa where you know John Kerry's out there campaigning, and up shows his Vietnam War, his Vietnam War, who he saved from drowning. Right. Yeah, and one could say that turned Iowa around instantaneously. So then we start to hit towards the end and the end is in sight. How hard was it for you to write the ends of those two shows that you were so intimately involved with? I think in both
1: those instances where I at least was involved in the conversation about how these shows should end. uh, And there were furious debates in in, in the West Wing writer's room about, among other things, who should win the fictional presidency that last season and – Lawrence O'Donnell is a very good friend of mine. Uh, he and I fought a lot about that uh, that season and a lot of other people too because we cared and you know it was all collegial but um, you you get to step back or you should step back and sort of be a fan mm-hmm. and say to yourself you know this how do we want this to end is you know, do we want a character to die or, you know, is a life over or is the story just over? Um, are we trying to satisfy the fans as I would argue Breaking Bad did or are we trying to provoke the fans as The Sopranos did? Right. So you get to, it, it's, it, it's, it's its own mission statement. Mm-hmm. I think how you end something uh, is, is a little bit of a philosophical statement about what you wanted it to mean and what you wanted your relationship to the audience to be. I think
0: in campaigns, well, I'm going to be a little more specific, please. when you wrote the concession speech for Al Gore, that was an ending.:
1: Yes, that was an ending. so I actually wrote a concession speech for Gore that that only he and I ever saw that was for the actual election night, uh, mm-hmm. and it was you know loaded onto a teleprompter and ready to go what. Fewer people know, that I think this has been written about a little bit, uh, is that I think I had five separate speeches ready for that evening, none of which were used. Because somebody came to me from the high command of the campaign, it might have been Tad Devine actually, who's uh-huh. been in the news a bit lately, and said um, there's, uh, there's some polling that indicates it could be an electoral tie. Uh, and, and or it might come down to absentee ballots in a single state. So I want you to write an extra speech and don't tell anyone and don't show it to anyone that essentially says, it's too close to call tonight. You've all you know, fought a great fight and we'll be back soon. Uh, then somebody else came to me and said, uh, there's a chance we will win the electoral college but lose the popular vote. So I want you to do an alternate version of a victory speech where it makes a special you know, argument about needing to kind of bring the country together and be everybody's president and reach out to the people who didn't, you know, vote for him. Yeah. Write that, don't tell anybody you have it, stick it in your back pocket. Gore came to me and said, (laughs) it looks like we could lose Tennessee but win the election. And I'd like a special version of a victory speech that speaks to Tennessee, my home state, and how I'm going to be reaching out a lot to Tennessee. So I had that version. So I had all these secret versions and it was like, coded on my computer, this is A1 like, one and B2 and, you know, the, alternates This of is like the
0: alternate endings of, of well, series, it is, you see. it is. And
1: none of these speeches were used. Um, so over the course of the Florida recount, every once in a while, I would take a look at whatever I had as a concession speech at the time and freshen it up and be mm-hmm. ready with it if I needed it. Uh, though in the end, the speech that Gore gave he kind of dictated to me what he wanted from yeah. everything. So a lot of that came right from him. I yeah. was there typing and doing a little bit of shaping, but I deserve a lot less credit than he does for that. But but uh but this is true I think of art and speeches. I don't know if I would call speeches life, but maybe they're a little closer to life than art. They're also art in a way that it's the moment that gives you the emotion. Yeah. And and it's not it, it you, you can't give a speech on your economic plan on an overcast Tuesday morning at Brookings. It can be the most beautifully written speech in the world, but you can't summon real emotion with that the way you can when your candidate is ending their career and stepping off the stage. And... um, you know, one of the speeches that I wrote when I worked for Dick Gephardt was the speech he gave when he passed the gavel to Newt Gingrich and ended 40 years of democratic rule of the House. And that speech got a lot of, you know, good press after he gave it. But I think he could have given anything. I mean, it was gracious and that Mm -hmm. probably helped. But it's the moment that makes it powerful. It's Mm -hmm. more than the words. I mean, if the words are good too, that's great. But, you know, when you're conceding a hard-fought campaign – The people who love you, love you. And the people who hate you, love you because you're leaving. And if you're gracious about it, that would be the one thing. You know, it's it's the one thing I said to Gore. And the one insight I felt I had from my brief career up to that point was, we should be even more gracious than you think you want to be. You can't be too gracious. I said that to him that morning. I don't know that he needed to hear it. You know, I was a kid and he was a you know, national leader. Uh, but I remember at the beginning of the day when we were putting it together saying, let me give you my two cents and, and that's what it is. And, and I think if you do that, you, you, then the moment carries the emotion yeah. and, and it really doesn't matter what you say.
0: Yeah. And speaking of closings, this closes our conversation. Thanks so much for coming it's by. It's been a
1: great pleasure, Michael, as always. Take care.
0: So that's how campaigns are looking more and more like miniseries, with my guest from the West Wing and House, Eli Addy. Today's episode of Politics as Unusual, heck, our entire season, has been brought to you by FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, and maybe they're good material for a cable series of their own. If you're joining us mid-season, why not go back and download a few of our earlier programs? I recommend starting with our inaugural program, Historically Speaking, Is there any hope with international stand-up star Eddie Azar? I do use history as an example for politics because I came up with this theory. History plus the change in society all
1: multiplied by the change in technology equals the future. You can almost track what we're going to do because if you
0: distill down humanity, we keep repeating things over and over again. I'm Michael Sheehan and this is Politics As Unusual.